Chapter forty eight of the Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Bears tidings of Martin and of Mark, as well as of a third person not quite unknown to the reader. Exhibits filial piety in an ugly aspect, and casts a doubtful ray of light upon a very dark place. Tom Pinch and Ruth were sitting at their early breakfast, with the window open, and a row of the freshest little plants ranged before it on the inside by Ruth's own hands. And Ruth had fastened a sprig of geranium in Tom's buttonhole, to make him very smart and summer-like for the day. It was obliged to be fastened in, or that dear old Tom was certain to lose it. And people were crying flowers up and down the street, and a blundering bee who had got himself in between the two sashes of the window was bruising his head against the glass, endeavouring to force himself out into the fine morning, and considering himself enchanted because he couldn't do it. And the morning was as a finer morning as ever was seen, and the fragrant air was kissing Ruth and rustling about Tom, as if it said, How are you, my dears? I came all this way on purpose to salute you. And it was one of those glad times when we form, or ought to form, the wish that every one on earth were able to be happy, and catching glimpses of the summer heart to feel the beauty of the summer of the year it was an even pleasanter breakfast than usual and it was always a pleasant one for little ruth had now two pupils to attend each three times a week and each two hours at a time and besides this she had painted some screens and card racks and unknown to tom was there anything ever so delightful had walked into a certain shop which dealt in such articles after often peeping through the window, and had taken courage to ask the mistress of that shop whether she would buy them. And the mistress had not only bought them, but had ordered more, and that very morning Ruth had made confession to these facts to Tom, and had handed him the money in a little purse she had worked expressly for the purpose. They had been in a flutter about this, and perhaps had shed a happy tear or two for anything the history knows to the contrary. But it was all over now, and a brighter face than Tom's, or a brighter face than Ruth's, the bright sun had not looked upon since he went to bed last night. "'My dear girl,' said Tom, coming so abruptly on the subject, that he interrupted himself in the act of cutting a slice of bread, and left the knife sticking in the loaf. "'What a queer fellow our landlord is! I don't believe he's been home once since he got me into that unsatisfactory scrape. I begin to think he will never come home again.' What a mysterious life that man does lead, to be sure. Very strange, is it not, Tom? Really, said Tom, I hope it is only strange, and I hope there may be nothing wrong in it. Sometimes I begin to be doubtful of that. I must have an explanation with him, said Tom, shaking his head, as if this were a most tremendous threat, when I can catch him. A double knock at the door put Tom's menacing looks to flight, and awakened an expression of surprise indeed. Heyday, said Tom. An early hour for visitors. It must be John, I suppose. Uh, I, I don't think it was his knock, Tom, observed his little sister. No, said Tom. It surely can't be my employer suddenly arrived in town, directed here by Mr. Phipps, and come for the key of the office. It's somebody inquiring for me, I declare. Come in, if you please. But when the person came in, Tom Pinch, instead of saying, Did you wish to speak with me, sir? Or, My name is Pinch, sir. What is your business, may I ask? or addressing him in any such distant terms, cried out, "'Good gracious heaven!' and seized him by both hands with the liveliest manifestations of astonishment and pleasure. 
the visitor was not less moved than tom himself and they shook hands a great many times without another word being spoken on either side tom was the first to find his voice mark tapley too said tom running towards the door and shaking hands with somebody else my dear mark come in how are you mark he don't look a day older than he used to do at the dragon how are you mark uncommon jolly sir thank ye returned mr tapley all smiles and bows i hope i see you well sir good gracious me cried tom patting him tenderly on the back how delightful it is to hear his old voice again my dear martin sit down my sister martin mr chuzzlewit my love mark tapley from the dragon my dear good gracious me what a surprise this is sit down lord bless me tom was in such a state of excitement that he couldn't keep himself still for a moment but was constantly running between mark and martin shaking hands with them alternately and presenting them over and over again to his sister i remember the day we parted martin as well as if it were yesterday said tom what a day it was and what a passion you're all in and don't you remember my overtaking you in the road that morning mark when i was going to salisbury in the gig to fetch him and you were looking out for a situation and don't you recollect the dinner we had at salisbury martin with john westlock ah oh, goodness gracious me ruth my dear mr chuzzlewit mark tapley my love from the dragon more cups and saucers if you please bless my soul how glad i am to see you both and then tom as john westlock had done on his arrival ran off to the loaf to cut some bread and butter for them and before he had spread a single slice remembered something else and came running back again to tell it and then he shook hands with them again and then he introduced his sister again and then he did everything he had done already all over again and nothing tom could do and nothing tom could say was half sufficient to express his joy at their safe return mr tapley was the first to resume his composure in a very short space of time he was discovered to have somehow installed himself in office as waiter or attendant upon the party a fact which was first suggested to them by his temporary absence in the kitchen and a speedy return with a kettle of boiling water for which he replenished the teapot with a self-possession that was quite his own sit down and take your breakfast mark said tom make him sit down and take his breakfast martin <laughs> i gave him up long ago as incorrigible martin replied he takes his own way tom you would excuse him miss pinch if you knew his value she knows it bless you said tom i've told all about mark tapley have i not ruth yes tom not all returned martin in a low voice the best of mark tapley is only known to one man tom and but for mark he would hardly be alive to tell it mark said tom pinch energetically if you don't sit down this minute i'll swear at you well sir returned mr tapley sooner than you should do that i'll comply it's a considerable invasion of a man's jollity to be made so particular welcome but a word is a word as signifies to be to do or to suffer which is all the grammar and enough too as i ever was taught and if there was a word alive i'm it for i'm always a being sometimes a doing and continually a suffering not jolly yet asked tom with a smile well i was rather so over the water sir returned mr tapley and not entirely without credit but human nature is in a conspiracy against me i can't get on i shall have to leave it in my will sir to be wrote upon my tomb he was a man as might have come out strong if he could have got a chance but it was denied him mr tapley took this occasion of looking about him with a grin and subsequently attacking the breakfast with an appetite not at all expressive of blighted hopes 
or insurmountable despondency. In the meanwhile, Martin drew his chair a little nearer to Tom and his sister, and related to them what had passed at Mr. Pecksniff's house, adding in a few words a general summary of the distress and disappointments he had undergone since he left England. "'For your faithful stewardship in the trust I left with you, Tom,' he said, "'and for all your goodness and disinterestedness, I can never thank you enough. "'When I add Mary's thanks to mine—' "'Ah, Tom!' the blood retreated from his cheeks, and came rushing back so violently that it was pain to feel it. "'Ease, though, ease compared with the aching of his wounded heart. "'When I add Mary's thanks to mine,' said Martin, "'I have made the only poor acknowledgment that it is in our power to offer.' But if you knew how much we feel, Tom, you would set some store by it, I am sure. And if they had known how much Tom felt, but that no human creature ever knew, they would have set some store by him, indeed they would. Tom changed the topic of the discourse. He was sorry he could not pursue it, as it gave Martin pleasure, but he was unable at that moment. No drop of envy or bitterness was in his soul, but he could not master the firm utterance of her name. He inquired what Martin's projects were. No longer to make a fortune, Tom, said Martin, but to try to live. I tried that once in London, Tom, and it failed. If you will give me the benefit of your advice and friendly counsel, I may succeed better under your guidance. I'll do anything, Tom, anything to gain a livelihood by my own exertions. My hopes do not soar above that now. High-hearted, noble Tom, sorry to find the pride of his old companion humbled, and to hear him speaking in this altered strain at once, at once he drove off from his breast the inability to contend with its deep emotions, and spoke out bravely. "'Your hopes do not soar above that,' cried Tom. "'Yes, they do. How can you talk so? They soar up to the time when you would be happy with her, Martin. They soar up to the time when you would be able to claim her, Martin. They soar up to the time when you will not be able to believe that you were ever cast down in spirit or poor in pocket, Martin.' advice and friendly counsel why of course but you shall have better advice and counsel though you cannot have more friendly than mine you shall consult john westlock we'll go there immediately it is yet so early that i shall have time to take you to his chambers before i go to business they are in my way and i can leave you there to talk over your affairs with him so come along come along i'm a man of occupation now you know said tom with his pleasantest smile and i have no time to lose your hopes don't soar higher than that? I dare say they don't. I know you pretty well. They'll be soaring out of sight soon, Martin, and leaving all the rest of us leagues behind. Aye, but I may be a little changed, said Martin, since you knew me pretty well, Tom. What nonsense, exclaimed Tom. Why should you be changed? You talk as if you were an old man. I never heard such a fellow. Come to John Westlock's. Come, come, come along, Mark Tapley. It's Mark's doing, I have no doubt, and it serves you right for having such a grumbler for your companion. "'There's no credit to be got through being jolly with you, Mr. Pinch. "'Anyways,' said Mark, with his face all wrinkled up with grins, "'a parish doctor might be jolly with you. "'There's nothing short of going to the United States for a second trip "'as would make it at all creditable to be jolly after seeing you again.' Tom laughed, and taking leave of his sister, hurried Mark and Martin out into the street, and away to John Westlock's by the nearest road. For his hour of business was very near at hand, and he prided himself on always being exact to his time. John Westlock was at home, but strange to say he was rather embarrassed to see them, and when Tom was about to go in the room where he was breakfasting, said he had a stranger there. It appeared to be a mysterious stranger, 
for john shut that door as he said it and led them into the next room he was very much delighted though to see mark tapley and received martin with his own frank courtesy but martin felt that he did not inspire john westlock with any unusual interest and twice or thrice observed that he looked at tom pinch doubtfully not to say compassionately he thought and blushed to think that he knew the cause of this i apprehend that you are engaged said martin when tom had announced the purport of their visit if you'll allow me to come again at your own time i should be glad to do so i am engaged replied john with some reluctance but the matter on which i am engaged is one to say the truth more immediately demanding your knowledge than mine indeed cried martin it relates to a member of your family and is of a serious nature if you will have the kindness to remain here it will be a satisfaction to me to have it privately communicated to you in order that you may judge of its importance for yourself and in the meantime said tom i must really take myself off without any further ceremony is your business so very particular asked martin that you cannot remain with us for half an hour i wish you could what is your business tom it was tom's turn to be embarrassed now but he plainly said after a little hesitation why i am not at liberty to say what it is martin though i hope soon to be in a condition to do so and i am aware of no other reason to prevent my doing so now than at the request of my employer it's an awkward position to be placed in said tom with an uneasy sense of seeming to doubt his friend as i feel every day but really cannot help it can i john john westlock replied in the negative and martin expressing himself perfectly satisfied begged them not to say another word though he could not help wondering very much what curious office tom held and why he was so secret and embarrassed and unlike himself in reference to it nor could he help reverting to it in his own mind several times after tom went away which he did as soon as this conversation was ended taking mr tapley with him who as he laughingly said might accompany him as far as fleet street without injury and what do you mean to do mark asked tom as they walked on together mean to do sir returned mr tapley ay what course of life do you mean to pursue well sir said mark tapley the fact is i've been a-thinking rather of the matrimonial line sir you don't say so mark cried tom yes sir i've been a-turning of it over and who is the lady mark the witch sir said mr tapley the lady come you know what i said replied tom laughing as well as i do mr tapley suppressed his own inclination to laugh and with one of his most whimsically twisted looks replied you couldn't guess i suppose mr pinch how is it possible said tom i don't know any of your flames mark except mrs lupin indeed well sir retorted mr tapley and supposing it was her tom stopping in the street to look at him mr tapley for a moment presented his view an utterly stolid and expressionless face a perfect dead well of countenance but opening window after window in it with astonishing rapidity and lighting them all up as for a general illumination he repeated supposing for the sake of argument as it was her sir well i thought such a connection wouldn't suit you mark on any terms cried tom well sir i used to think so myself once said mark but i ain't so clear about it now a dear sweet creature sir a dear sweet creature to be sure she is cried tom but she always was a dear sweet creature was she not was she not assented mr tapley why on earth didn't you marry her at first mark instead of wandering abroad and losing all this time and leaving her alone by herself liable to be courted by other people 
why sir retorted mr tapley in a spirit of unbounded confidence i tell you how it come about you know me mr pinch sir there ain't a gentleman alive as knows me better you're acquainted with my constitution you're acquainted with my weakness my constitution is to be jolly and my weakness is to wish to find a credit in it very good sir in this state of mind i gets a notion in my head that she looks on me with an eye of with what you may call a favourable sort of eye in fact said mr tapley with modest hesitation no doubt replied tom we knew that perfectly well when we spoke on this subject long ago before you left the dragon mr tapley nodded assent well sir but being at that time full of hopeful visions i arrives at the conclusion that no credit is to be got out of such of a way of life as that while everything agreeable be ready to one's hand looking on the bright side of human life in short one of my hopeful visions is that there's a deal of misery awaiting for me in the midst of which i may come out tolerable strong and be jolly under circumstances as reflect some credit i goes into the world sir wery buoyant and i tries this i goes aboard a ship first and wery soon discovers by the ease with which i'm jolly mind you that there's no credit to be got there i might have took warning by this and gave it up but i didn't i gets to the united states and then i do begin i won't deny it to feel some little credit in sustaining my spirits what follows just as i'm a beginning to come out i'm a treading on the verge my master deceives me deceives you cried tom swindles me retorted mr tapley with a beaming face turns his back on everything has made his service a creditable one and leaves me high and dry without a leg to stand upon in which state i returns home very good and all my hopeful visions being crushed and finding there ain't no credit for me nowhere i abandons myself to despair and says let me do that as has the least credit in it of all marry a dear sweet creetur as is very fond of me me being at the same time wery fond of her lead a happy life and struggle no more again the blight which settles on my prospects if your philosophy mark said tom who laughed heartily at this speech be the oddest i've ever heard of it's not the least wise mrs lupin has said yes of course why no sir replied mr tapley she hasn't gone so far as that yet which i attribute principally to my not having asked her but we was very agreeable together comfortable i may say the night i come home it's all right sir well said tom stopping at the temple gate i wish you joy mark with all my heart i shall see you again to-day i dare say good-bye for the present good-bye sir good-bye mr pinch he added by way of soliloquy as he stood looking after him although you are a damper to an honourable ambition you little think it but you was the first to dash my hopes pecksniff would have built me up for life but your sweet temper pulled me down good-bye mr pinch while all these confidences were interchanged between tom pinch and mark martin and john westlock were very differently engaged they were no sooner left alone together than martin said with an effort he could not disguise mr westlock we have met only once before but you have known tom a long while and that seems to render you familiar to me i cannot talk freely with you on any subject unless i relieve my mind of what oppresses it just now i see with pain that you so far mistrust me that you think me likely to impose on tom's regardlessness of himself or on his kind nature or some of his good qualities i had no intention replied john of conveying any such impression to you and i am exceedingly sorry to have done so but you entertain it said martin you ask me so pointedly and directly returned the other that i cannot deny the having accustomed myself to regard you as one who 
not in wantonness but more in thoughtlessness of character did not sufficiently consider the nature and did not quite treat it as it deserves to be treated it is much easier to slight than to appreciate tom pinch this was not said warmly but was energetically spoken too for there was no subject in the world but one on which the speaker felt so strongly i grew into the knowledge of tom he pursued as i grew towards manhood and i have learned to love him as something infinitely better than myself i did not think that you understood him when we met before i did not think that you greatly cared to understand him the instances of this which i observed in you were like my opportunities for observation very trivial and were very harmless i dare say but they were not agreeable to me and they forced themselves upon me for i was not upon the watch for them believe me you will say added john with a smile as he subsided into more of his accustomed manner that i am not by any means agreeable to you i can only assure you in reply that i would not have originated this topic on any account i originated it said martin and so far from having any complaint to make against you highly esteem the friendship you entertain for tom and the very many proofs you have given him of it why should i endeavour to conceal from you he coloured deeply though that i neither understood him nor cared to understand him when i was his companion and that i am very truly sorry for it now it was so sincerely said at once so modestly and manfully that john offered him his hand as if he had not done so before and martin giving his in the same open spirit all constraint between the young men vanished now pray said john when i tire of your patience very much in what i am going to say recollect that it has an end to it and that the end is the point of the story with this preface he related all the circumstances connected with his having presided over the illness and slow recovery of the patient at the bull and tacked on to the skirts of that narrative tom's own account of the business on the wharf martin was not a little puzzled when he came to an end for the two stories seemed to have no connection with each other and to leave him as the phase is all abroad if you'll excuse me for one moment said john rising i will beg you most immediately to come into the next room upon that he left martin to himself in a state of considerable astonishment and soon came back again to fulfil his promise accompanying him into the next room martin found there a third person no doubt the stranger of whom his host had spoken when tom pinch introduced him he was a young man with deep black hair and eyes he was gaunt and pale and evidently had not long recovered from a severe illness he stood as martin entered but sat again at john's desire his eyes were cast downward and but for one glance at them both half in humiliation and half in entreaty he kept them so and sat quite still and silent this person's name is lucem said john westlock whom i have mentioned to you as having been seized with an illness at the inn near here and undergone so much he's had a very hard time of it ever since he began to recover but as you can see he is now doing well as he did not move or speak and john westlock made a pause martin not knowing what to say said that he was glad to hear about it the short statement is that i wish you to hear from his own lips mr chuzzlewit john pursued looking attentively at him and not at martin he made to me for the very first time yesterday and repeated to me this morning without the least variation of any essential particular i have already told you that he informed me before he was removed from the inn 
that he had a secret to disclose to me which lay heavy on his mind but fluctuating between sickness and health and between his desire to relieve himself of it and his dread of involving himself by revealing it he has until yesterday avoided the disclosure i never pressed him for it having no idea of its weight or import or of my right to do so until within the last few days when understanding from him on his own voluntary avowal in a letter from the country that it related to a person whose name was jonas chuzzlewit and thinking that it might throw some light on that little mystery which made tom anxious now and then i urged the point upon him and heard his statement as you will now from his own lips it is due to him to say that in the apprehension of death he committed it to writing some time since and folded it in a sealed paper addressed to me which he could not resolve however to place his own act in my hands he has the paper in his breast i believe at this moment the young man touched it hastily in corroboration of the fact it will be well to leave that in our charge perhaps said john but do not mind it now as he said this he held up his hand to bespeak martin's attention it was already fixed upon the man before him who after a short silence said in a low weak hollow voice what relation was mr anthony chuzzlewit who who died to me said martin he was my grandfather's brother i fear he was made away with murdered my god said martin by whom the young man lucem looked up in his face and casting down his eyes again replied i fear by me by you cried martin not by my act but i fear by my means speak out said martin and speak the truth i fear this is the truth martin was about to interrupt him again but john westlock saying softly let him tell his own story in his own way lucem went on thus i have been bred a surgeon and for the last few years i have served a general practitioner in the city as his assistant while i was in his employment i became acquainted with jonas chuzzlewit he is the principal in this deed what do you mean demanded martin sternly do you know he is the son of the old man of whom you have spoken i do he answered he remained silent for some moments when he resumed at the point where he had left off i have reason to know it for i have often heard him wish his old father dead and complain of his being wearisome to him and a drag upon him he was in the habit of doing so at a place of meeting we had three or four of us at night there was no good in this place you may suppose when you hear that he was the chief of the party i wish i had died myself and never seen it he stopped again and again resumed as before we met to drink and game not for large sums but for sums that were large to us he generally won whether or no he lent money at interest to those who lost and in this way though i think we all secretly hated him he became to be the master of us propitiated we made a jest of his father it began with his debtors i was one and we used to toast a quicker journey to the old man and a swift inheritance to the young one he paused again one night he came there in a very bad humour he had been greatly tried he said by the old man that day he and i were alone together and he angrily told me that the old man was in his second childhood and that he was weak imbecile and drivelling as unbearable to himself as he was to other people and that it would be a charity to put him out of the way 
He swore that he had often thought of mixing something up with the stuff he took for his cough, which should help him to die easily. People were sometimes smothered who were bitten by mad dogs, he said, and why not help those lingering old men out of their troubles too? He looked full at me as he said so, and I looked full at him, but it went no further that night. He stopped once more, and was silent for so long an interval, that John Westlock said, Go on. Martin had never removed his eyes from his face, but was so absorbed in horror and astonishment that he could not speak. It may have been a week after that, or it may have been less or more. The matter was in my mind all the time, but I cannot recollect the time, as I should any other period, when he spoke to me again. We were alone then, too, being there before the usual hour of assembling. There was no appointment between us, but I think I went there to meet him, and I know he came there to meet me. He was there first. He was reading a newspaper when I went in, and nodded to me without looking up, or leaving off reading. I sat down opposite and close to him. He said immediately that he wanted me to get him some two sorts of drugs, one that was instantaneous in its effect, and which he wanted very little, one that was slow and not suspicious in appearance, of which he wanted more. While he was speaking to me, he still read the newspaper. He said, Drugs, and never used any other word, neither did I. This all agrees with what I have heard before, observed John Westlock. I asked him what he wanted the drugs for. He said, For no harm, to visit cats. What did it matter to me? I was going out to a distant colony. I had recently got the appointment, which, as Mr. Westlock knows, I have since lost by my sickness and which was my only hope of salvation from ruin. And what did it matter to me? He could get them without my aid at half a hundred places, but not so easily as he could get them off me. This was true. He might not want them at all, he said, and he had no present ideas of using them. But he wished to have them by him. All this time he still read the newspaper. We talked about the price. He was to forgive me for a small debt. I was quite in his power and to pay me five pounds, then there the matter dropped through others coming in. But next night, under exactly similar circumstances, I gave him the drugs. On his saying I was a fool to think that he should ever use them for any harm, and he gave me the money. We have never met since. I only know that the poor old father died soon afterwards, just as he would have died from this cause, and that I have undergone and suffer now intolerable misery. Nothing, he added, stretching out his hands, can paint my misery as it is well deserved, but nothing can paint it. With that he hung his head and said no more. Wasted and wretched, he was not a creature upon whom to heap reproaches that were unavailing. Let him remain at hand, said Martin, turning from him, but out of sight, in heaven's name. He will remain here, John whispered. Come with me, softly turning the key upon him as they went out conducted Martin into the adjoining room in which they had been before. Martin was so amazed, so shocked and confounded by what he had heard, that it was some time before he could reduce it to any order in his mind, or could sufficiently comprehend the bearing of one part upon another, to take in all the details at one view. When he, at length, had the whole narrative clearly before him, John Westlock went on to point out the great probability of the guilt of Jonas being known to other people, who traded it in for their own benefit, 
and who were by such means able to exert that control over him which tom pinch had accidentally witnessed and unconsciously assisted this appeared so plain that they agreed upon it without difficulty but instead of deriving the least assistance from this source they found it embarrassed them more and more they knew nothing of the real parties who possessed this power the only person before them was tom's landlord they had no right to question tom's landlord even if they could find him which according to tom's account it would not be easy to do and granting that they did question him and he answered which was taking a good deal for granted he had only to say with reference to the adventure on the wharf that he had been sent from such and such a place to summon jonas back on urgent business and there was an end to it besides there was the great difficulty and responsibility of moving at all in the matter lucem's story might be false in his wretched state it might be greatly heightened by a diseased brain or admitting it to be entirely true the old man might have died a natural death mr pecksniff had been there at the time as tom immediately remembered when he came back in the afternoon and shared their counsels and there had been no secrecy about it martin's grandfather was the right person to decide upon the course that should be taken but to get at his views would be impossible for mr pecksniff's views were certain to be his and the nature of mr pecksniff's views in reference to his own son-in-law might be easily reckoned upon apart from these considerations martin could not endure the thought of seeming to grasp at this unnatural charge against his relative and using it as a stepping-stone to his grandfather's favour but that he would seem to do so if he presented himself before his grandfather in mr pecksniff's house again for the purpose of declaring it and that mr pecksniff of all men would represent his conduct in that despicable light he perfectly well knew on the other hand to be in possession of such a statement and take no measures of further inquiry in reference to it was tantamount to being a partner in the guilt it professed to disclose in a word they were wholly unable to discover any outlet from this maze of difficulty which did not lie through some perplexed and entangled thicket and although mr tapley was promptly taken into their confidence and the fertile imagination of that gentleman suggested many bold expedients which to do him justice he was quite ready to carry into instant operation on his own personal responsibility still baiting the general zeal of mr tapley's nature nothing was made particularly clearer by these offers of service it was in this position of affairs that tom's account of the strange behaviour of the decayed clerk on the night of the tea-party became of great moment and finally convinced them that to arrive at a more accurate knowledge of the workings of that old man's mind and memory would be to take a most important stride in their pursuit of the truth so having first satisfied themselves that no communication had ever taken place between lucem and mr chuffey which would have accounted at once for any suspicions the latter might entertain they unanimously resolved that the old clerk was the man they wanted but like the unanimous resolution of a public meeting which will oftentimes declare that this or that grievance is not to be borne a moment longer which is nevertheless borne for a century or two afterwards without any modification they only reached in this conclusion that they were of all one mind for it is one thing to want mr chuffey and another thing to get at him and to do that without alarming him or alarming jonas or without being discomfited 
by the difficulty of striking in an instrument so out of tune and so unused the note they sought was an end as far from their reach as ever the question then became who of those about the old clerk had the most influence with him that night tom said his young mistress clearly but tom and all of them shrunk from the thought of entrapping her and making her the innocent means of bringing retribution on her cruel husband was there nobody else why yes in a very different way tom said he was influenced by mrs gamp the nurse who had once had the control of him as he understood for some time they caught at this immediately here was a new way out developed in a quarter until then overlooked john westlock knew mrs gamp he had given her employment he was acquainted with her place of residence for that good lady had obligingly furnished him at parting with a pack of her professional cards for general distribution it was decided that mrs gamp should be approached with caution but approached without delay and at the depths of that discreet matron's knowledge of mr chuffey and means of bringing them or one of them into communication with him should be carefully sounded on this service martin and john westlock determined to proceed that night waiting on mrs gamp first at her lodgings and taking their chance of finding her in the repose of private life or of having to seek her out elsewhere in the exercise of her professional duties tom returned home that he might lose no opportunity of having an interview with nadgett by being absent in the event of his reappearance and mr tapley remained by his own particular desire for the time being in furnival's inn to look after lewsome who might safely have been left to himself however for any thought he seemed to entertain of giving them the slip before they parted on their several errands they caused him to read aloud in the presence of them all the paper which he had about him and the declaration he had attached to it which was to the effect that he had written it voluntarily in the fear of death and in the torture of his mind and when he had done so they all signed it and taking it from him of his free will locked it in a place of safety martin also wrote by john's advice a letter to the trustees of the famous grammar school boldly claiming the successful design as his and charging mr pecksniff with the fraud he had committed in this proceeding also john was hotly interested observing with his usual irreverence that mr pecksniff had been a successful rascal all his life through and it would be a lasting source of happiness to him john if he could help him do it justice in the smallest particular a busy day but martin had no lodgings yet so when these matters were disposed of he excused himself from dining with john westlock and was fain to wander out alone to look for some he succeeded after great trouble in engaging two garrets for himself and mark situated in a court in the strand not far from temple bar their luggage which was waiting for them at a coach office he conveyed to this new place of refuge and it was with a glow of satisfaction which as a selfish man he never could have known and never had that thinking how much pains and trouble he had saved mark and how pleased and astonished mark would be he afterwards walked up and down in the temple eating a meat pie for his dinner End of chapter forty eight